Uh, before we, uh, we dive into God's word, uh, just a few quick kind of family items and some encouragements. Uh, one thing I wanted to share is uh, yesterday was our, our first, not our first annual, our inaugural, thanks to Lauren, I think about you, inaugural um, second Saturday serve day. And so we had to change some things up because Warm NC wasn't able to accommodate our group. And so we had maybe 15 to 20 people in the body actually showed up yesterday and, and just helped clean up Mosley Academy across the street. So I just want to say thank you to everybody who kind of recalibrated and changed that. Um, if you look across the street, you'll see, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 paper bags holding. 30? 130. Wow. I mean, 20-ish, right? <laughs> 130 bags. Not that you're accounting, by the way. Mackie oversees our community outreach. But anyways, just wanted to say thank you to everybody who was a part of that. I'm sure it was a huge blessing for them. And I want to take a minute and pray um, just, to, just to acclimate you a little bit. You know, one of the major ways we're seeking to be an influence and blessing in our neighborhood is to engage uh, Mosley Academy as well as Rachel Freeman right down the street from us and to be a tangible blessing in, in any way we can be. So I just want to pray that those efforts go toward building fruitful relationships for us to give us gospel influence in those spaces. So let me pray for that. And um, God, we do ask that uh, the very uh, significant ways that we serve, um, ways that at times may feel more trivial, that all of it would give us a, a fruitful platform to speak about the glory of your name, to talk about Jesus, to... Uh, to practically love and serve those around us, that we would be a benefit to those right here in our neighborhood. Uh, God, we want to be a good church in this neighborhood, but, but we want to be even more than that. We want to be a, um, a body of believers that if we were to be gone from this space, that we'd be missed because we've made a substantial impact in the lives of those around us. So uh, would you multiply our efforts? Thank you for everybody who served yesterday in that regard and pray that you would continue to open up doors for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one more practical thing for next weekend. So Forge Men's Breakfast is next Saturday. Immediately following Forge, uh, Nathan Colk. Nathan, you in here, brother? Nathan's in the back. Um, can you stand up and raise your hand just so everybody can see your face? So Nathan, yeah. <laughs> they don't even know why they're applauding you, but it's like, hey, there's a guy standing up. Um, so next Saturday, there's gonna be, uh, Nathan's going to lead kind of a sound 101 class. So we're doing some upgrades to our sound system, some changes and uh, we need some additional people to serve in that space to help with sound, with audio uh, here and just for the events we do here at the, the church building. Um, for most people, uh, we don't have experience in that space, and it seems kind of intimidating and daunting. And so uh, Nathan has assured us that if you have the, the desire to want to serve in that realm, he'll be able to train those who are interested. Um, we take for granted being able to come in here and sing and just be led musically and otherwise. And so if you have any interest, if you're looking for a way to serve practically, uh, it's definitely an area that we have that's a need. And so uh, next Saturday, uh, immediately following forward, so around 10 o'clock here in the building, Nathan will be leading that training. All right. With that said, let's grab our Bibles and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be reading essentially the, the second half of, of chapter 2 this morning. We'll start in verse 13. If you haven't been with us, we're uh, starting our journey through the Gospel of Matthew and navigating through the first couple chapters, which are very familiar because of Christmas time. And 
Um, one of the things, you know, anytime you talk about entertainment from the pulpit, you got to be careful. But I, I love watching, uh, one of the types of movies I like watching are thrillers. And so espionage type movies. Um, and a lot of times when you watch thrillers, what, what you get is this, this constant back and forth of uh, you have the villain chasing the hero, whoever that hero may be. And you swing seemingly just constantly between moments of, of certain disaster to somewhat almost miraculous escape. And it might surprise you, but there's a way in which the Bible is that same way. That the, the people of God and the purposes of God seem to be, throughout the Bible, um, subject to certain disaster. Like they're going to be like God's purpose. And even we see in Matthew chapter 2, we'll see today, even God's son seems to be at risk of being destroyed. But in God's faithfulness and his kindness, he protects and he promotes and he preserves his purposes and his plan and ultimately his salvation. Throughout the ages, God has preserved his people and his purposes have moved forward. The fulfillment of God's word is a major point in this text. So as we get ready to read in just a moment, I want you just to kind of listen for the, the specific emphasis on the way that God's word is fulfilled. When we started this book, one of the things I mentioned is that Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish of the gospels. And one of the ways we see that is how often he refers to how God's word in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in a, in a certain moment in a particular way. And we're going to see that three times, three Old Testament prophecies fulfilled just in a matter of 10 verses. And additionally, you have the word of God coming through angels and even dreams in this section, fulfilling his purposes and ultimately preserving his plan. And fulfilling God's word, he ultimately preserves his plan of salvation. Just as God himself is unstoppable, God's plan of salvation is unstoppable. And we get to see that in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. The main idea I want to give you this morning is that man's schemes can't stop the humble king. The man's schemes can't stop the humble king. And so we're going to pick up, um, chapter 2 represents largely the same story. Uh, you have the birth of Jesus and you have the, the wise men that we looked at last week and the religious leaders and the way that they respond to these wise men coming to Jerusalem. And then you have Herod, this earthly ruler and king, and in his reaction to the notion of there being another king of the Jews. There's a very real way in which Herod, Herod the Great, would have been known as the king of the Jews because he was the Roman king, as it were, in that area of the Jewish people, in Judea. And so to have another king of the Jews, as it were, sweep in, understandably from a worldly standpoint, was nothing but a threat to Herod. But man's schemes, and ultimately Herod's schemes, can't stop this humble king of the Jews. Let's read, starting in, we're going to read in verse 12, and then we'll read through the remainder of chapter 2. It says, And being warned in a dream, this is the wise men, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So God, as we, uh, as we survey your word now, I pray that you make our hearts tender to what you want to teach us. Make clear the things that are unclear to us. Uh, would you apply the things in our lives that we need uh, most desperately to be changed in? And we pray that our love for you would increase, our submission to you would increase, um, the appeal of the world would decrease, that you'd be glorified in and through us through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> so these wise men, the Magi from the East, we talked about last week, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they went a different way. And then we see another warning coming to Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So the Old Testament book of Hosea depicts God's love for Israel despite their rebellion and disobedience against God. And this quote that we see in Matthew, what we just read, comes from Hosea 11.1, 1, which says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, it seems like a little bit of a confusing reference Matthew, but it's one of the times I mentioned a few weeks back, a lot of times what you see in the Old Testament, when it shows up in the New, is you'll see basically a, a near and a far fulfillment, basically fulfillments on two different planes of history. And it seems like this is, again, one of those examples. Hosea's prophecy speaks of how God rescued his son, Israel, out of Egypt. But Matthew sees Hosea's prophecy fulfilled initially in Israel being rescued out of Egypt, but ultimately and finally being fulfilled in Jesus being rescued, as it were, or coming out of Egypt ultimately to be spared from Herod's murderous plot. But it's fulfilled in Jesus, God's son, being called out of Egypt after Herod died. Then verse 16, we see this reaction of Herod. So Herod gets so angry, he's incensed. He's passionately, vehemently angry at the wise men for not returning to him as he had asked them to. Because if you remember from last week, he said, hey, why don't you go and search diligently for this child that I 
that you tell me of so I can come and worship him as well. But obviously we see today it wasn't his intent to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill him because he saw him as a threat, which we'll get to in just a moment. So the other gospel accounts and the archives of history are, are silent about this murderous event in Bethlehem, which shouldn't necessarily throw us for a loop or cause us any concern. But one of the things we see is that Bethlehem was a very small town. So we'll get back to that in just a little bit as we talk about Nazareth being kind of a small place. But Bethlehem was a relatively small town. And that region was small. And so it's likely that the number of children under the age of two, which was the demographic that Herod said needed to be killed, it's likely that the the number of those children would be somewhere between 12 and 20 people, most historians think. Now, one baby murdered is too many. But as it relates to the scope of history and even the scope of Herod's evil, this is just a little bit of a, a dot on the screen. As we look at Herod's background and his evil, you see how bad and how wicked his resume of evil really was. Let me just give you just a brief scope. So King Herod had 10 wives over the course of his life, and he murdered two of them, one of which was said to be his favorite wife because he believed that she was conspiring against him. He also killed three of his own sons for the same reason, because he believed that they were vying for his throne. At the end of his life, he had several Jewish leaders arrested on false charges, and then he told the authorities upon his death, King Herod's death, he said, I want you to kill all of these Jewish leaders. And the purpose was he wanted there to be really broad lament and grief in the region when he died. So he thought he'd just kind of amp up the grief by killing a bunch of people who were innocent. And it gives you a little bit of a flavor of who Herod was. So it's actually not all that surprising that this, this event in Bethlehem wasn't captured in the archives of history because ultimately there was much more that Herod did that was even more evil, maybe in some people's eyes than the murder of these babies in Bethlehem. But ultimately, that that order of killing those Jews in Jerusalem wasn't carried out, but it's captured in Roman history. But Matthew depicts his response as his passionate, intense fury. He wanted to use everything in his power to kill this baby king of the Jews. And when you read verses 17 and 18, look there with me. Again, after the first kind of fulfillment out of Egypt, I called my son. We have the second one. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And you have this depiction of Rachel, Jacob's wife, as the mother of the nation of Israel, weeping for her children. The people of Israel, as many were killed and ultimately taken into captivity, in the Babylonian captivity. The picture is that Rachel demonstrating the nation wept over the children that were taken into captivity. And again, we have this kind of near and far fulfillment. So back then, it would have been the weeping and sadness and bereavement of a a family of children lost in that captivity and to the murder associated with being overtaken by foreign nations. But the far fulfillment is the pain and loss experienced in Bethlehem 
among Rachel's children Israel because of Herod's command to murder all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years old. And there's an interesting connection. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, how Pharaoh ordered that the babies be killed as well. And there was a unique child that was saved out of that, namely Moses, because of the bravery of the midwives. And you see this picture how Jesus becomes kind of the, the greater Moses rescued in this moment out of Bethlehem, and he goes to Egypt. But then in verse 19, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. So he's there. Don't know exactly how long he was there, but then he's committed to come back. Hey, these, this leader, these evil people have died. And there's something really sweet about this moment. It might sound a little bit strange, but it's essentially this is that the enemies of God always meet their end. Like when you, when you hear about Herod, all we see at the end in the scriptures is that he died. God's plan moves forward. God's son still remains. But he died, and God preserves his purposes on earth and his purposes of salvation. The kings of earth cannot escape death, but the king of heaven defeated death. So Joseph heard this message, notably, as we've seen in Joseph's life, he just listens to God and simply obeys, gets up, and he goes back. But what's, what I want to do is take a little bit of time to talk about Herod. And if I, if I could just put it this way, one of the reasons I want to zoom in on Herod just for a moment is because there's a, there's a King Herod in all of us. Here's what I mean by that, is that there's, there's a way in which all of us, certainly in the moment where we're confronted by the claims of Jesus and the notion that we're called to submit to this crucified king, when we're confronted with that, all of us have a King Herod in us that stands up and says, oh, wait just a second, I don't, I don't want to surrender. I want to keep some measure of control. And because that's present, all of us need to examine our own hearts and whether you're not a Christian in this room, maybe for the first time, you need to be confronted with the fact that you've never truly surrendered, like you've tried to white-knuckle keep control of your own life. Even for us as Christians, like we still have remnants, like because of the flesh, where we want to keep control over certain pockets of our lives, portions of our lives. We don't want Jesus to reign there. He can reign here. When we step out of here, there's certain parts of us that we want to still rule and reign in, I think, if we're honest, right? So it does us well to maybe consider Herod in this moment. So when Herod heard the announcement of the wise men and their earnest desire to worship Jesus, he heard the prophecy about the king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem from the religious leaders. You could say he believed it. He believed that there was a baby, king of the Jews, being born. And he believed that this baby king posed a threat to him. That he, in fact, was going to grow up and was going to serve as a, an adversary to his own rule and authority. And he acted consistent with his belief, with what was true about Jesus Maybe the only thing we could commend Herod for, like he was, 
as he responded as the king in the area and maybe in his heart was like, well, there's, no, there's not enough room for two kings. You could say like he was right. Like he was right about that. Because when it comes to Jesus, like there really, there's no middle ground. His reaction was based on what was true about Jesus. Jesus was in fact a threat to Herod's reign. And Jesus is a threat to anyone seeking to rule their own little kingdom. I don't know if you've had this experience. There are times in my former life when I was working in the workplace, in the marketplace for State Farm, I had a lot of changes of management over those years. And sometimes I would be in a department where the person coming in really had no experience in the area that I've been living in for years. So I was really the technical expert, and they began to encroach upon my territory and tell me what to do. And what I wanted to be like is like, what you're not going to do is tell me how to do my job because I've been doing this for so long. Like that's that's kind of like you're encroaching on my territory and my authority and I don't want you here. And we see that kind of response in Herod. But when we see Jesus for who he is, like we must surrender to him. Like the response to Jesus' teaching is to embrace it and worship or silence him by whatever means necessary. We either let him rule our life or we rebel against him. There's, there's truly no middle ground. You either worship him as king or you kill him as a challenger. I had some exchange with a couple of brothers in the body even after last week's message. And this is one of the spaces where, like, culturally, you know, many people, if not most, because most religions have a place for Jesus. Really, every major religion has a place for Jesus, not necessarily as God or as Savior. But most people have a category for Jesus. And many will accept Jesus, in Tim Keller's words, as a counselor. They just don't want him as king. And many people are comfortable with a notion of like a baby king in the, in the manger but when you start talking about a king crucified on a cross for sin, that's where it, it crosses the line of comfort. We don't want him that way. We'd rather keep him small as a baby and not see him as a man born to die because it has implications on our life, right? So I think if we're honest, we see much of King Herod in, in our own response to Jesus. I know I can think back on my own life I remember being really rattled by the question, like confronted with my sin for the first time when I was around 21 years old and realizing what it meant. If Jesus is who he says that he is, that it means that I have to surrender to him. Like I understood that. I just didn't like it. And I think if we examine our own hearts, even today, there's still residue of that Herod within us. Let me just submit Real quickly, three deceptions that keep us contending for the throne. Three deceptions here that keep us contending for the throne and not wanting to surrender it. One is that we're just simply deceived by our appetite. Like we've fallen into the lie that everything besides God will ultimately satisfy. The things that we've been eating on, the wells we've been drinking from, 
Like we've, we've really grown to believe that they actually will deliver what they never will be able to. And as a result, what happens is we look at God and we, we see him as that which doesn't satisfy. Because ultimately we've chosen to believe a lie over here that these things do, but he doesn't. So we're deceived by our appetites. But God says, in a sense, like, test me and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And let me just encourage you today. Like, ultimately, you'll find out. If you chase the world for the rest of your days until your last breath, you will find out. And I say this with no joy in my heart. That ultimately, all of those things left you wanting. In the worst way possible, you'll find yourself standing before God, clothed in your own self-righteousness. And what's offered to you today is a foreign robe of righteousness. But right now what it means is forsaking all these other meaningless treasures of the world and finding in Christ the satisfaction of your souls, the desire of nations, the one who the nations contend for, but we are ultimately deceived by our appetite. We're also deceived about God's character. And some of this can be circumstances that seem to inform us. Even the psalm we sang earlier, like you've never disappointed me, right? Christ is my firm foundation, we sang earlier. My guess is some of us heard that lyric like, wait a second, I've been disappointed by God before. But it's because our circumstances seem to give us a narrative that God is something that he's not. Like we don't believe in his word, we believe instead in what the winds of culture or circumstance seem to communicate to us. And so we ultimately believe a lie about the character of God. And it keeps us from running to him. It keeps us from surrendering to him because we bought into a lie about who he really is and his character. But he is a good and gracious king and he's a faithful father even when the things around us seem to communicate different, he alone is secure. He alone has grace to provide sinners for forgiveness. It secures the hearts of the broken and picks up the wounded and the weary. He's the father to the fatherless. He's the one who dwells in unapproachable light, but yet invites us to draw near. He's the good shepherd of the sheep who lays his life down for his sheep. He's the resurrection and the life. And the one who trusts in him, even though he die, he has life. And he's the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And he's the vine, and we're the branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. But with God, all things are possible. And on and on and on. We're deceived about God's character. We're also deceived about our own ability to rule. Like, family, this is real. Like, this, every single one of us struggles with this. Like, we have a massive overestimation of our own ability to rule our kingdom. Like, we trust ourselves way too easily and way too much. And I'm preaching in my own heart as much as I'm giving it to you. Like, we overestimate our ability to rule this thing called our life. And some of us have lived enough life, we're like, yep, there's enough evidence in front of me and behind me that I'm not actually cut out to be the king. And we see the evidence in the Bible of God being a good and gracious king and we submit to him. But don't overestimate your own 
wisdom. God is capable, he's able, he's good. And Andrew Murray put it this way. I love this quote. He says, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. He's more than capable to be the king of your life. And he deserves to be the king of your life. In verse 21, says, and he rose, Joseph, that is, and took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned again in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And this is where I'll finish before we take communion together. Reading this section can feel a little bit like just listening to someone talk about their, their comings and their goings on a trip or something. It's like, what is, what's the significance of this section, the significance of these details? But remember that God is orchestrating the details. God is fulfilling his word in these details. Like God is preserving his plan in these details. He's unfolding the humble glory of his son, the Nazarene. Now, this reference is, some would say, maybe one of the more confusing in Matthew's gospel because there's no Old Testament reference to Nazareth. So there's no, there's no prophecy as it relates specifically to Nazareth, but yet Matthew is saying in his words, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So a Nazarene was someone specially set apart for the purposes of God, and Jesus certainly was that. But there seems to be something deeper here connected to really the, the city of Nazareth. Matthew states, Jesus living in Nazareth fulfilled was spoken by the prophets because there's no reference in the Old Testament to Nazareth. It seems like what's being said is that this fulfills something of a theme that you see in the prophecy about the Messiah. There's something over the scope of what all the prophets say that seems to resonate with and tie in to Nazareth. And here's what I believe the picture is. Like Nazareth was a small, despised town, like an insignificant town on the map. Whatever town you think of as insignificant, think of that. It was kind of a nowhere place. We hear a hint of this in John's gospel account as Jesus calls Philip to be one of his disciples. And here's this exchange between Philip and his brother Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. There's a statement again, Come and see. Try it. Try him. Test him. See if he's good. But his, the general tone is like, hey, there's nothing noteworthy coming out of Nazareth. Now, Jesus of Bethlehem might have had a little bit more of a ring of the Messiah for those who knew the Old Testament, like those Jewish leaders. They knew the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. If Jesus would have gone around being just Jesus of Bethlehem, it might have been a little bit more believable, but Jesus of Nazareth, ah, not so much. It had a different ring. 
But Jesus gladly associated himself with this little lowly and despised place, Nazareth. As you look forward in Acts chapter 22, where Saul, who's persecuting the church, who becomes Paul, writes 13 letters in the New Testament, Jesus appears to, to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? And how does he introduce himself? And I answered, this is Saul, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting this day. Isaiah 11 pictures the Messiah like a humble shoot, like a little obscure branch coming from the leftover stump of Jesse, King David's family line. Isaiah chapter 11. I've got a picture up here. You can put that picture with that end of that verse on it. Ken, you got that? So Isaiah 11.1 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And this little, seemingly dried up place with no purpose, forgotten, despised even, that was low, not even on the map, comes this branch from the dust of what was the the remnant of Israel, still under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And in this little town comes this life-giving branch, Jesus of Nazareth. Who could have imagined, right? For nearly 30 years, Jesus lived as a carpenter in a despised village. Just think about that for a moment. Like, we know very little about those around 30 years. But he grew up in a little town amongst the little people, obscure. It's like royalty living in obscurity. And we'll see him come on the scene as we flip to chapter 3 and John the Baptist paving the way. But who could have imagined it? Well, if you read Isaiah 53, you can actually see it and hear it. Those of you who read Isaiah 53, it's one of the most famous prophecies about the Messiah. It says this, and look at some of the language. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant. This is speaking of the Messiah, ultimately of Jesus. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus makes an unlikely town his hometown. As I mentioned on Christmas Eve, and he makes unlikely people a part of his family. He associates with the lowly. He associates with the weak. And those who are sorrowful and broken and needy and forgotten and wounded. And those who are little in the world, he makes much of. The humble is the one that he exalts. He is the branch that brings life out of dry ground. Will you take a hold of him today? You may resonate. Your life may indicate. You may feel like you are that dry ground. Take heart. 
Because the branch of David grew out of dry ground. And he still causes life to come out of lifeless places today. Amen? He's a sympathetic Savior who can relate to your grief and sorrow and pain. The question is, will you trust him? Will you surrender to him or will you oppose him? He's the humble king who will one day return. Will you surrender to him or oppose him? We see in this chapter that Jesus escaped death at the beginning of his life so he could defeat death at the end of his life. God's plan, his purposes, and his salvation are unstoppable. He did what he said he would do. His question to us is, will we believe him? Will we surrender to him or will we oppose him? Will I seek the king or will I oppose him in my life? And let me just challenge as well as encourage you that there's no middle ground as it relates to Jesus. You either surrender to him or you rebel against him. Whether in your indifference or in your hostility, either one is rebellion. And the invitation for you today is to find life in him. Find life where it's found. And family, like believers in this room, like if you find yourself as we go to take communion, part of that is examination of our own hearts and our own lives. If you see the evidence of holding on to the throne in different areas of your life, now is the time to confess. And once again, to hurl yourself on the mercy of God found in Jesus because he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I ask you to bow your head with me and we'll take a minute just to allow the Lord to work in our hearts before we take communion together. God, would you help us just in a brief moment of quiet? Would you examine our hearts? Search us, God, as the psalmist says. See if there be any sinful way within us that you might lead us into your ways, your everlasting, your life-giving ways. Spirit, we ask for your help even now. Jesus, thank you for being despised so we could be delivered. Thank you for being rejected so we could be redeemed. Thank you for being a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. Thank you for becoming our guilt, our shame, and our sin so that we, we could be forgiven. May our trust ever be in you in this life and in the life and for the life to come.